Hello, everybody. Thank you for coming to 11th Hour. Welcome. Uh, if you're just coming in, please go ahead and take your seats. And if you don't mind, please turn off or silence cell phones. And also, one more announcement. If there are questions at the end, I will bring this microphone around so everyone can hear and we can capture the audio. If this 11th hour series has a through line, it's got to be that writing takes courage. We talk of taking risks, of failure, of writing from personal experience. On Thursday, we will hear from Sarah Safian about writing about loved ones. Today, Lon Otto will discuss where we find the nerve to write. Lon has published three collections of stories, A Man in Trouble, A Nest of Hooks, the winner of the Iowa School of Letters Award for Short Fiction, and Cover Me, as well as the craft ebook Grit, Bringing Physical Reality into Imaginative Writing. His fiction, nonfiction, and poetry have appeared in many anthologies, including the Pushcart Prize, American Fiction, Flash Fiction, and Flash Fiction Forward, and Townships. Several of his stories have been broadcast on NPR's Selected Shorts. He is a professor emeritus at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota, where he taught literature and writing for many years. Please join me in welcoming Lon Otto. Thank you, Anna. Uh, and thank you all for, for coming. Uh, when I mentioned this talk at the end of my class last night, one student said, it's something about a basement, right? And another said, it sounds like it's about facing your demons. And both of these were so much more appealing to me than what I'd planned to talk about that I said yes. Yes, that's exactly right, and hope that I could rewrite everything by morning. I'm afraid I haven't managed that, but I'll do the best I can. I'll be talking for a little over a half hour, and then we'll get to the good part, the conversation, uh, during which I hope you'll share your questions and your experiences involving nerve, failure of nerve, and ways of achieving the many different kinds of nerve necessary to write truly and well. Whatever you call the kinds of writing we're doing here at the University of Iowa this week, creative, literary, genre-driven, genre-bending, traditional, experimental, getting started or finishing up or wondering what the hell we're going to do next, to a large degree we share the same agenda. We read as writers, we learn techniques, we put the techniques into practice, and we receive and offer response to work in progress. Indeed, reading as writers, technique, practice, and response are all absolutely essential. They constitute much of what's taught in almost any good writing workshop, and we hope to God they're being learned. There's something that's less commonly taught in writing workshops, however, at least overtly taught. Maybe it truly can't be taught as curmudgeons used to claim that creative writing can't be taught. But it surely needs to be learned. It's what I'm calling nerve, the courage to face the inevitable challenges of writing, as well as some challenges that are more particular to specific moments, subject matter, and situations. I gave an 11 o'clock talk a few years ago called Writer's Voodoo, which dealt with mostly irrational rituals and routines that writers practice in order to overcome some of those challenges and get the job of writing done. This talk tries to dig underneath some of those rituals and routines, exploring more closely why they're necessary, why the writing life takes nerve. I'm going to do some sorting, some categorizing of various kinds of challenges that demand different kinds of courage, but I want to insist now and ask you to remember later that they're all entangled and really inextricable from each other. It's like our brains. We used to think we had it sorted out. Left brain controlling logic, right brain controlling emotion and imagination. It was as neat as geography. Iowa, east of the Missouri River, Nebraska, west of it. And then we discovered it wasn't so neat, as even geography isn't so neat. We discovered Carter Lake, Iowa, which is not only west of the Missouri River, 
It's west of the Omaha airport, Carter Lake, Iowa. Look it up in Google Maps if you don't believe me, but not now. Anyway, I'd like to put as little emphasis as possible on the categorizations and recognize the writer's need for courage as really a single thing with different angles and aspects and levels of urgency. I'll sort it a little to help us think about it and talk about it, but it's not the categorizing that's important, it's the courage. I'll begin with three kinds of nerve we all need to summon up in almost any writing situation. First, the nerve to face the blank page, to get started and keep going, walking up to those blank pages and laying down words on them, and then laying down some more. Then the nerve to face the filled page, to engage in the process of significant revision. And then the nerve to face an audience, to expose our writing to different readers, to open ourselves to criticism and judgment. We face those three areas of challenge with every writing project we undertake, other than perhaps a truly private journal. Every workshop you enroll in asks you to engage them and provides you with encouragement and tools to help you accomplish that engagement successfully. Some very good writers I know have to make a conscious effort to summon up the courage for every one of those challenges. Some find one or another of them particularly daunting, and some, bless their hearts, seem to be utterly fearless with regard to all of them. The difference, I think, is more a matter of temperament than either character or talent. Every one of you in this room has been dealing with those challenges as long as you've been writing. I think it's both useful and honest to acknowledge that they can be nervous-making. We're not just being lazy when we put off getting the new project going, or when we stall out along the way, the blank page or blank screen glaring at us in all its terrifying blankness. It's perfectly reasonable to be afraid sometimes that we don't know enough about the subject matter, that we don't have the writing chops to do justice to it, many other potentially paralyzing fears, hence the magic of prompts which kick us onto the page whether we're completely ready to go there or not. You can't live the writing life... Excuse me. You can't live the writing life on prompts, however, so we develop work habits and routines that make stepping onto the page a more or less normal act. Similarly, I think it can be perfectly understandable to be afraid of revision. There are all sorts of horrible voices in our heads telling us to avoid it. You must murder your darlings. A half dozen famous writers have told us the one who actually originated the metaphor isn't famous at all. And who wants to do that? First thought, best thought, Allen Ginsberg said. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. I'm teaching a class this week that's focused on developing techniques to get past the fears and confusion and other challenges of serious revision. It does take courage to engage in real revision. We need to admit that. And then we need to change our bloody metaphors and adopt practices that, adopt, that approach the process of revision in manageable, logical steps. We need to be brave and we need to be smart. As to facing an audience, with a piece of new writing, why shouldn't that freak us out sometimes? An opportunity to be judged in all sorts of ways, judged by those we know, judged by strangers. I think maybe the best antidote to that is to allow ourselves to be interested in the response of an audience, to be curious about it, genuinely curious, maybe almost scientifically curious, seeing it as an opportunity to find out something about the piece we've written, rather than as a judgment on us. And even if you discover, and even what you discover is that the piece seems to suck for a given reader, 
It's an opportunity to find out how and why and where in particular, and to learn something about the reader. We need to get interested in the reader, as interested as we are about every other aspect of the writing life. Curiosity, I think, is one of the most powerful antidotes to fear. It draws us nearer and nearer to something, whereas fear drives us back. And always remember, the audience is more afraid of you than you are of it. I don't know what that means. But didn't it give you comfort as a kid when your mother or father said that about the dog staring at you from across the lawn? No. Me neither. I've dealt with these inevitable challenges throughout my career as a writer and teacher of writing. I didn't always think of them as something demanding courage, particularly. They were just stages in the writing process until I started reflecting on their similarity to some rather different kinds of challenges, things that are not an inevitable part of a given writing project, but which can loom as a seemingly insurmountable obstacle to writing in certain particular cases, demanding a particular kind of courage. And those are the challenges that I think most of us will face eventually. Years ago, when I was a new teacher in the Iowa Summer Writing Festival, I had a student in her 80s who was working on a science fiction novel. She said she didn't read much science fiction, and she didn't seem especially committed to the project. It was just something she had decided to try, a kind of willingness to experiment that I admire and do my best to support, and which represents itself a real kind of courage. During our individual conference, when we were talking about aspects of her experience that she could conceivably draw on to give the novel more realism, distinctiveness, and emotional urgency, quality, she had been told more than once that her pretty conventional sci-fi novel in progress needed. And after talking a little about her family and career, she mentioned having been sent away from her impoverished farm family when she was six years old to live in a somewhat better off uncle and aunt's household where she was treated as an indentured servant for the rest of her girlhood, abused in many ways, rarely sent to school, and never allowed to return to her own family, even for visits. I listened in horror and finally asked her if she had ever written about that time, which was so much stranger as well as more powerful than the sci-fi narrative she had brought to the class. She said no, others had suggested that, but it was just too painful. She didn't want to live through those horrible years again. It was clear that she had thought about it long and hard. I had all sorts of arguments rushing forward in my mind to try to convince her otherwise. But ultimately, I had to respect her choice. And by respect, I don't mean allow her to have her way. I had no say in the matter. I mean acknowledge the power and dignity of her decision. A friend and colleague to whom I told this story was appalled at the wasted opportunity, not just for her, but for others who could have learned from her experience. And I get that. He was right. But she had to make that choice for herself. It wasn't that she was repressing her experience. She clearly remembered. She recognized what had been done to her, and she understood how wrong it had been. She just was not willing to live it all again. And that's one of the things it means to write about experience, living it again, which is why writing about trauma takes such extraordinary courage, even if we firmly believe that it will help us heal and become whole again and maybe help others to heal. That conversation has stuck with me over the years, haunted me at times. It's a reminder of what's at stake when a writer chooses to write about his or her painful personal, personal experiences, something that is a powerful aspect of much memoir writing and many poems, but also happens in fiction. Dickens had to go back to that workhouse to write David Copperfield. However veiled or transformed traumatic personal experience 
is a fearsome realm for a writer to enter. Knowing that writing about trauma can be healing and affirming is important, but it doesn't remove the fearsomeness, the need for real courage, real nerve. One of the things I addressed last year in an 11th hour talk about audience was the fact that writing workshops, such as those we're involved in here at the University of Iowa, can be paradoxically ill-equipped to engage personal trauma. Because many of us write most powerfully much of the time when we're drawing on powerful experiences, not scarring traumas necessarily, but experiences that leave marks on us and in us. Writing that deals with those painful personal experiences is naturally what we often bring to writing workshops. But a writing workshop is not group therapy, or at least not mainly that. In writing classes and other workshop settings, we properly focus most of the time not on the what of the experience, but on the how of the writing. We focus on the writing, writing techniques, ways of making the writing stronger. And that has to feel, it just has to feel sometimes profoundly, bitterly wrong. I nearly died, we mutter to ourselves. And they talked about time frames and point of view shift and levels of diction. In my experience, however, regardless of what gets focused on in class discussion, members of a good writing workshop understand what's at stake in writing that draws on personal trauma. We understand the courage it takes to grapple with those experiences. In looking for techniques that can most effectively express it, we do honor to the experience and to the writer's willingness to face it. A good writing group gives us courage. Last summer, a member of uh, one of my uh, week-long classes was working on a complex nonfiction project focused on a woman named Franja, a close relative who had died in the Holocaust. My student had been doing research, searching out details of this relative's rich, remarkable life and her heartbreaking death in Vilnius, Lithuania. During the week of our workshop, she received by email a document she had long searched for and dreaded reading. The translation into English of a survivor's post-war testimony telling of atrocities committed by the Gestapo against members of a company of Yiddish theater actors, including Franja. She hadn't opened the document, a terrible one for her. And on the last day, she asked if she could do so in class, reading it for the first time in the company of her fellow workshop members, whom she had come to see as a thoughtful and supportive community. That was how we ended the week-long class, this writer being brave in the company of her fellow writers, reading an extraordinarily moving account that ended with the horrifying details of her relative's murder. None of us really knew what to say to her afterward, but I think we all felt honored that she had chosen to take that difficult step in our company, allowing each of us to carry a little bit of the weight. In the weeks following the class, my student wrote to me that she had stopped work on her project and that she didn't want her children to read about what she had discovered. It was too horrible. And then a few months later, she wrote me that she was in France, continuing her research, getting ready to go to Lithuania, continuing her project, being brave. A somewhat different demand for special courage, special nerve, involves writing about friends, colleagues, family members whose lives intersect and interweave with the life of the writer. I would be surprised if there weren't a number of writers sitting here today who have faced that challenge or may be facing it still. If you're one of those, I hope you'll share some of your experiences during our conversation. One of the most vivid and moving accounts of this situation I've ever read is in Mark Doty's essay, Return to Sender. The, content, the context of the essay is a side trip Mark and his partner take to the town where Mark grew up. The heart of the essay 
is a reflection on what it means to write a memoir about painful family history. The essay is brilliant, a, a short course in memoir writing, and, and very relevant to our subject this morning. I'm going to read a few passages to give you a feel of that relevance. Much of the essay focuses on Dodie's father, who ultimately breaks with him uh, in an apparently permanent way because of what his son has written. Dodie writes, my family never wanted to deal directly with anything really, and I grew up with the sense that to name a problem was to invite mighty trouble. The problem, if there was such a thing, was my mother's alcoholism, the reputed source of which shifted variously. My homosexuality, my sister's misbehavior, my mother's own back pain or uh, loneliness or thwarted creativity or mismatched marriage. None of these causes were directly addressed, not quite. They simply floated in the air of our household or were blurted out in drunken and agonized moments or were overheard or were offered as whispered confidential explanations. I guess that my father was scared that his adult son would do the naming for all the world to see and that this revelation of our story would not be told in his favor. Or afraid that I would say the unspoken thing between us? That I felt he'd failed to protect me? The truth of my high school years is that I was pretty much of a on my own while my parents were entirely absorbed in the drama of my mother's spectacular collapse. There was about a three-year period when no one remembered, for instance, to buy me shoes. I tried to kill myself at 15, and sometime in there, I can't remember exactly when, who would want to, notice that, who would want to remember. My, my mother tried to shoot me with my father's revolver. In other words, he did fail to protect me. Having left home at 17 to marry an alcoholic myself, I paid the tough dues necessary to learn childhood's impossible lesson that you cannot save anyone, not mother or spouse and the most powerful child in the world, which is surely what I must have imagined myself to be, cannot fix anything, no matter how good or smart he is or how he disguises himself to try to be who he thinks he's supposed to be no matter how loyal he is to his drunken mother or how loyally he later behaves toward his father by acting just like him. No wonder my father didn't want me to write another memoir. But write it I did, holding at bay, notice that strategy, holding at bay the awareness that he and my sister would be reading the book in order to work freely, I needed to behave as if in the composing process I was in the arena of pure freedom, of irresponsibility. Here I could say anything without consequences. That's the sort of permission the imaginative life requires. And I could allow myself that, increasing, actually, my sense of freedom in successive drafts of the book, which each time seemed to grow riskier and to probe farther. Sometimes I'd catch myself saying, Oh, you don't have to write that. Who wants to read it? And then realizing that in protecting these, projecting these doubts outward onto readers, I was actually protecting not the potential reader, but myself. I was the one who didn't want to read about whatever it was that troubled me. And then, once I understood that, I did want to read it and to write it. I hope you notice the strategies for gathering courage he identifies in that passage. The holding at bay, the pretending that no one is, is going to read it. The experience I report here is, I suppose, every memoirist nightmare. After his father breaks off communication with him, returns the letter, a letter of attempted reconciliation, unopened, Dodie writes, the experience I report here is, I suppose, every memoirist nightmare, that we will lose people in our lives by writing about them. I have replaced an inauthentic relationship, the conversation we had before, with many, its many elisions, with an authentic silence. Is that better? Here's the last paragraph of the essay. 
which I think is something, something miraculous. I am used to it, my father's silence, and his silence is a burning in which I reside. In my worst moments, I think, well, now I have no parents. Then I think I never did. Then I think, yes, I did. There were moments of affirmation. There were lessons in beauty and making. There were instances of instruction in which I was shown those things that have sustained my life. Both are true. There's the rub, the caught in-betweenness of it. I don't care anymore what my father thinks. And I am to some degree crippled by his response. I don't want his presence or his absence. I am proud of my book, and I wouldn't change a word of it. I wish I'd never written it. No, I don't. Yes, I do. No, I don't. An essay by Edmund White titled uh, Writing Gay addresses two different kinds of nervous-making challenge. One similar in some ways to Doty's situation, though more broadly societal, the other a challenge of technique. The challenge of anticipated negative responses went beyond risks to personal relationships for White. Writing a biography of the novelist Marcel Proust and about himself as an autobiographical novelist, finding the courage and the diversionary tactics when necessary to write about homosexual experience at a time when publishing it was a chargeable offense. Proust had promised his publisher, Gallimard, early on, White writes, that his book, Remembrance of Times Past, must be judged, might be judged obscene since it treated a pedophile. White talks about the transpositions of homosexual lovers into heterosexual ones in order not to bring down the law on his publisher and makes the intriguing claim that the demands of those transpositions was in fact the most creative part of his book the very area where he had to combine memory of real experiences with objective observations of real women he'd studied in the world and their heterosexual male lovers. White gained courage necessary for autobiographical fiction, also from writing a biography of the playwright and novelist, Jean Genet. In this case, the, the challenges included structural issues, matters of form, as well as matters of intimacy. When I turned to the Farewell Symphony, um, White's um, autobiographical novel, one of them, White says, the last volume of my autobiographical trilogy, I had just come out of the experience of researching and writing the Genet biography. In the Farewell Symphony, I stretched the boundary of coherence to the breaking point, but I had the courage to do so because I'd written a long biography of a man who could not be totalized whose evolution was always surprising and certainly unpredictable, and whose affairs were always messy. We've been talking about the courage needed to write about material that's as close to us as blood, our personal experience, and the experience of those with whom our lives are entangled. There's an inverse to that. The courage needed to go that is, go physically sometimes, but more often imaginatively, intellectually, emotionally, places in which we aren't intimately involved, where we feel out of place, unwelcome, outsiders, at risk of inauthenticity or lack of standing. Grace Paley's harrowing story, The Little Girl, is the best example I can think of for illustrating this kind of courage. The little girl is narrated by a middle-aged black man, Charlie, who tells of letting his friend Carter use his apartment to have sex with a white girl he picks up in the park. Charlie later learns, partly from Carter, partly from the police, that the girl, a 14-year-old runaway, had ended up dead at the bottom of an air shaft below Charlie's place, bleeding and broken after being abused by Carter and then by Charlie's junkie roommate, Angie, of whom Cardi's, Charlie said to Carter when he'd asked to borrow the place, he could be home, but he's strung out most of the time. So there you have it, in a six-page story by an activist, left-wing, secular Jewish white woman, 
a story that risks the most virulent racist stereotypes of our time. My knees almost literally shake when I think of the courage it took Grace Paley to write that story, to write and publish that story, a writer who never abandoned the front lines of social activism, fighting for civil rights into her last years, who never became a mere liberal. I feel similarly about one of James Baldwin's most famous stories, Going to Meet the Man, which is told from the point of view of a violent, racist, white Southern sheriff lying in bed, sleepless, with the wife he's just failed sexually, telling her about his beating and cattle prodding a black voting rights protester almost to death earlier that evening, and then remembering the experience of being taken by his father to witness a lynching when he was a boy. I'm not much of a hero worshiper, but Grace Paley and James Baldwin are heroes to me, defining hero as someone who conveys courage by example. And I invoke them whenever I'm trembling before this kind of challenge. I trembled and invoked them often in writing some of the stories in A Man in Trouble, a collection I published a year and a half ago, which includes a number of stories with narrators or point-of-view characters who have identities significantly different from my own, and tried to do what I think Paley and Baldwin did, bringing to bear on the story every realm of authority that was available to me, things that I knew directly, experientially, in order to imagine myself into lives that were as important, that were in important ways, but never in every way alien to me. Teaching a class here on writing about travel two weekends ago and a class on developing characters last week, I encountered many examples of writers' courage. The courage to undertake a big and significant project, to write about devastating personal experiences and deeply flawed family members. The courage to try new techniques and engage new material. I also observed a challenge I discovered in my own writing life long ago and have spent most of my writing life fighting. And that's the powerful instinct to protect a character with whom we closely identify with from real censure. We give that character flaws, yes, even sins, but make sure that they're forgivable sins, perhaps even admirable. He works too hard. She's too honest. He's over-eager. She's full of righteous anger. At least one student I know left Iowa City struggling to summon up the courage to allow a character he identified with face real and justified blame. Finally, I don't think we should leave a talk about writer's courage without at least acknowledging a kind of challenge that most of us, we hope, will never be required to face, but which has been real and continues to be a part of the writing life looked at globally. I'm talking here about writers facing threats to their lives and their freedom because of what they write. The closest I've personally come to those facing that ultimate challenge was a conversation I had a number of years ago with Nadine Gordimer before the fall of apartheid in South Africa. She was giving a lecture at my university and we talked about the treatment of dissidents writing in opposition to apartheid. The relative safety afforded her by her international reputation, but the physical and political dangers faced by writers without the cloak of fame. Facing loss of jobs, imprisonment, torture, something that is less frightening, certainly, but which for some reason particularly moved me. The government, she told me, would take away authors' typewriters. During the Soviet era in Russia, it was common for writers, even fiction writers, even poets, to be imprisoned or sent into exile. I can recall an American writer in the late 70s, Robert Bly, I think, though I'm not sure, bemoaning the fact that our government didn't take writers, especially poets, seriously enough to persecute them. I thought at the time, and I still think, that this is a weirdly naive position 
romantic boys longing to show their heroism in battle. But I get it. Nobody wants to be negligible. Today, it's mainly journalists in many parts of the world who regularly face physical violence. Writers such as Javier Valdez and other journalists in Mexico. Valdez was murdered this year for writing about the drug cartels and corruption in Mexico. And he wasn't the first, and I'm afraid he won't be the last. It's not a kind of writing risk any sane person would ask for. But we need to know about it and understand that these are our sisters and brothers. They're heroes, certainly, and perhaps the example of their courage can make it a little easier for us to summon the nerve to face our own smaller but still absolutely real fears. Okay, thus endeth the monologue portion of, uh, of this 11th hour. Um, I hope you'll raise questions and share some of your own experiences, summoning up courage or not managing to, things that have worked or failed to work for you, and going down into that basement and facing those demons. question. I don't know if this will make sense, but I was part of a writing group in, uh, at a university and uh, at a med center, at the university med center, and there was very good writers there. And um, the member I'm writing, I was told it was too dark and I needed to lighten it. And I have found light in there and I'm trying to put light in there but I felt I felt it was like a subject someone doesn't want to talk about or in in general and it's people don't want you know they kind of don't want to hear it but they really want to hear it sure so I guess that's the dilemma for everybody yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's hard. It's, it's, it's horribly hard. And uh, yeah, we don't, it's like Doty says, I, I don't want to read this. I do want to read it. I don't want to write this. I do want to write it. That in-betweenness never goes away, I think. It doesn't go away for the reader. It doesn't go away for the writer. You decide what's important, what's most important. Um, and... I guess a question that I would ask, and I would say, I would, get, I would bear down on that writing group um, or any reader who gives you that kind of a response and say, what does this really mean? What does this mean? Does this mean, um, and, and if, if what it means is the constant darkness has nothing to set it off, and so we start getting numb to it, then I think that's maybe a, um, a response that's really worth looking at. Um, I think that with any art, uh, certainly any narrative art, um, there needs to be a movement up and down. Otherwise, we stop hearing it. If it's all up, it stops being up, really. If it's all down, it starts, stops being down, really. And so I think... Um, embracing the full range of emotion, always, always being at least open to the full range of emotion, um, I think is critical. And if you say, well, no, the way, the mode I was in, I've been editing out, I've been excluding anything that um, is not dark and terrible, because this is about a dark and terrible experience, then that would be something that I would rethink. I would, I would try, try that. Um, if, however, just the readers don't have the guts to encounter what you're giving them, um, then I'd say that's, that's perhaps the reader's problem. Um, but but I, would, I, would, I would poke at it. I would poke at it and try to figure out what really is going on here. That's a great question. Yes, yes, Laura. I read your A Man in Trouble, and I thought, too, as I started to read the stories that were written from the perspective of 
characters other than a white male. Wow, is he really going to do this? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, my current collection of stories, as you know, is based in Central America. And I've written some of them pr from the perspective of Native people as well, and mm -hmm. I'm finding that it's really difficult. So what did you do? What was your process to get into that character um, with real depth? Right. Well, it is, it is difficult, and it is, was hard to me, and I, and I did approach it with fear and trembling on some level, always. Um, one thing is, I think basically the answer has to do with, with what are your realms of authority that you bring, that you bring to the, the character or the situation? Because uh, everybody has realms of authority, the things that you really know about, including really knowing about the kind of character that you're, that you're writing about, but also knowing about the things that you have in common. I would not have written that, those stories if I hadn't lived for um, 20 years in a neighborhood that, was, um, that is um, very mixed, if I didn't have a lot of friends. And so when I would be writing dialogue, when I'd be writing um, reflection and so forth, I'd be thinking of people that I knew. I would be thinking of how they talk, um, the rhythm of their own, their own, their own narratives, and um, and then also, and then overlaying those. So that's really important. You really need to know the people. I think um, uh, know them in a way that's personal to you, particular to you, and to not to never, I guess, write about a, a class of people, but always to be writing about. Individuals. I think if you're writing about individuals, that's a different, that's a different thing. Um, and then to, to and then I made very sure. I think in every case, I hope in every case, where I was writing about from the point of view of a woman um, or a gay man or a really obnoxious um, heterosexual male or um, or black characters. Um, and I just published a story with a point of view as a, um, a Hmong student, much younger than me, and, uh, and, and Hmong by heritage. And um, to say, what are all the things that I have in common, and to draw deeply on those. And I don't, I don't think I've ever written about a character, certainly not from the point of view of a character, who was different from me in every way. Um, so a character will um, have one aspect of experience, but um, all the other things that I bring to bear. This is me. I, I see myself in that character. I have to put myself into that character. Um, be, and then that requires a kind of courage, too, that you have to look sharply at, at yourself. But, um, but there are certain kinds of things that I probably wouldn't do. If there's a character that I don't feel I really understand, I might try to write about that character to try to understand, but... Um, but I don't know that it will usually end up on the page. That, might, that would be something I say. If I don't feel an, a, an authenticity about it, I won't put it, I won't publish it. I'll maybe try writing it, but I'll probably keep it out of what's going to be published. Because I don't trust it. I don't trust myself with this character. And so maybe I'll make that character a secondary character, somebody that, that a character that I have more confidence that, I get that I know. I know how this character's mind works. I know um, how this character thinks about things. Um, will maybe reflect on, speculate about the way we do, the way we do all the time. So it's so. Th so the key, I think, is authenticity, is bringing all the areas of authenticity that you have to bear on that character, to put as much of things that you know directly into that character, um, but then also to make sure you really you really do know who this who this person is, not just how this person looked. And you realize it's always going to be scary. I don't think it's ever not going to be scary. Uh. My, my question is about, it, it relates back to your protecting the character, um, and it's temporal. In the memoir that I'm writing, I predominantly am writing a point of view of a child mm -hmm. and looking at the, the father character mm -hmm. in that way, which was loving and 
he was loving. And then there is a moment where information is revealed that doesn't really change the point of view, but it adds a lot of depth to this, my character. And I'm not sure how to work being an adult writing back as a child. I did find it out when I was a child. Mm -hmm. So it might be a too technical question to answer yeah, this way. Yeah, I think it is. Uh, I think it is. And uh, Sarah Safian is going to be talking about um, those matters uh, later this week. And I think she would be much better um, equipped to answer your, um, your, your pretty intricate um, and clearly uh, important question than, than I, I'm just, I, I don't think I'm equipped really to, to answer it on the spot. Yeah, but she'll be great. She's going to be <laughs> fabulous about things like that. I'm writing about a, uh, a, uh, a post-communist bureaucrats in, another, in an East European country. And from time to time, I'm worried that, frankly, some of the, most of the stories are humorous uh, and uh, have con some punchlines. And uh, I worry sometimes that I might insult another culture or society yeah. or government uh, uh, do you have any suggestion on parameters, on how far to go, or how to measure whether yeah. that might occur? Yeah. Well, I think you're right to be worried about that. That is something that uh, um, really could happen. Um, and maybe that would be um, really bad. I, I don't know. Um, I guess what I would, and the, the whole area of humor, humor writing, is a complicated one, and uh, I think we've ha we've had over the last what three weeks maybe some harrowing examples of people in public trying to be funny and um, really stepping in a steaming pile of dog shit as a result. Um, there's at least three examples that I can think of that I can think of right now. Um, and I think, I guess what I would say first of all is don't try too hard. I think in every case those people were trying way too hard to make a joke. And so they ended up doing things that, that weren't very funny and that um, caused all kinds of, in some cases justified um, offense, I think. Um, I would say try to tell the truth. I mean, this would be my advice, is to try to tell the truth of it. And that might mean some exaggeration, that might mean some um, shaking and tweaking, but, um, but if you're fundamentally telling the truth about that culture, about those experiences, um, I think you're all right. I think you're all right. Uh, um, a travel book that I talk about sometime is uh, a book by Bill Bryson, who's primarily known as a, um, a humorist, does, has written a lot of very successful travel books. Um, one of his books is, and I talked to some of you about this, I think, um, it's called Lost Continent. It has the, the nice um, premise of a guy living in, grew up in Iowa, lived in England for the last 15 years, comes back and decides to do a road trip around the United States, recreating his family road trips and trying to discover lost, the lost America of his, of his childhood. The first chapter of that is one gag after another, and they're all exactly the sort of things that I would say would be legitimately offensive to people. They're like Polish jokes at least the way Polish jokes used to be, um, uh, that have nothing to do with actually being Polish, but just assume a stupidity and a grossness and a lack of culture and so forth, and it makes gag after gag after gag about Iowa, uh, you'll be interested to know, um, about their, um, again, about their stupidity, their um, fatness, their, I mean, you name it. Um, it just 
None of them have to do with any actual experience, all right? Any actual experience that he ever had with anybody. They could have, you could take out Iowa, Des Moines, and put in another uh, state, another country, other cities, were just the same, all right? That seems to me to be the kind of writing that um, we shouldn't just be afraid of, we just, we simply shouldn't do it. I think that's beneath us. Now, once he gets going, once he actually starts traveling, interacting with people, he settles down. He's actually having experiences, and so what he's telling now is the truth more or less. The truth more or less as he experienced it. And, and it's funny. It's really funny, but it has that, a sense of genuineness about it. And then there's one point in the, um, in the book when he, rises, when he is shocked out of it entirely and becomes... Uh, maybe the best writer that he's ever been for about three or four pages, and then he settles back into the, the really good writer that he is, but not the, the great writer. So, um, so, so I'd look at it that way. Say, am I making jokes about these people, or am I drawing on things that I know here that are funny? You see what I mean? Does that, does that distinction make sense? And, and then I think, if you're, if you're writing about what you've actually seen, I wouldn't worry about if somebody takes offense. I mean, lots of writers writing about family experience and culture. Uh, Philip Roth uh, ran, in, ran into this um, and wrote very in a very funny way ab about it in some of his um, novels. Like in, uh, in The Ghost Writer, uh, this writer comes back and um, his family's first. And you, you, we recognize ourselves in these characters and you act like we all, all we ever talk about is money, and we always argue all the time. And he said, that is all you ever talk about. And I'm like, yeah, but somebody will make a judgment on us. Um, and, uh, and it goes on. So, um, so you're, never, you're never completely out of the woods with that. But, um, but, but I, I would let that be my, my touchstone. So it is, is, this being, is this genuine? Am I writing about something that's real and maybe exaggerating somewhat, um, shaping somewhat, or am I just um, repeating slurs about, about these people? Oh, sorry. Uh, you mentioned the reader several times and our awareness and attention to the reader. And it occurs to me I have that picture of the reader. I'm not sure where it comes from. And mm -hmm. I, I wondered, so a two-part question would be, uh, in your experience or awareness, where does our idea of the reader come from? And number two, or related to that, would it behoove us to spend some time really delving into that and distinguishing the reader in a more um, detailed way? Uh, taking the second part first, I guess I think probably smart writers have done that canny writers have done that, have done market research. Okay, what, do writer, what do readers want? And I think um, in certain genres that probably has been done with, with great success. It's, it's not something that I've ever been smart enough to do, uh, canny enough to do, but um, I wouldn't think it was a, a foolish thing to do. Um, I think most writers imagine an audience that is somewhat like themselves, because if they're trying to please the reader, engage the reader, and not please make the reader happy, but engage the reader, draw the reader in, um, they, ha they have to be a part of that. The writer has to be a part of that. And then most writers have, a, I think, a sense of maybe one person that they say, well, in my mind, I'm writing for this person, really. Would this person be engaged with this? Would this person, and sometimes that's somebody that's not even around anymore, or maybe a small group, a few readers that, you, that you've encountered over the years, you're saying, these are people that have good judgment. These are people that are responsive, they're sympathetic, they're smart. Um, if I can engage them, I'll be happy. And I, I think other readers will be. And so you, you kind of imagine, I think, an audience. But um, I think being kind of specific about that at some point is useful. Um, the research, so forth, I, that's just not something that I... I know much about it. I guess it makes sense. Uh, 
other things. Yeah. I wrote a novel and I drew on a lot of things that happened in our old neighborhood and none of them were like tragic or socially important. They were just funny. Yeah. But I turned them into fiction so uh -huh. that my friends wouldn't get totally ticked off at me. Uh-huh. And sometimes I th and I when I write memoir pieces I tend to focus on the stories that are truly my stories. Uh-huh. Not the incredibly embarrassing stories I could tell sure. about my siblings. Sure. And I'm trying to figure out am I just being chicken? Yeah. Or is it okay <laughs> to do that? Well, it's okay to be chicken. <laughs> uh, um, you make up those choices. Uh, again, I don't think, th again, that's something that maybe um, um, Sarah will have um, more particular things to answer, um, to say. The, the choice between fiction and nonfiction um, is, a, is one of those big choices that writers make, and you seem to work in, in several genres. Um, other things being equal, nonfiction has all sorts of advantages, and I say that with sorrow because I'm a fiction writer, but um, the, the claim that something is true has a lot of power. It just does. Um, two people sitting next to you um, at a bar or a table, and, and one's muttering about this um, amazing dream that he had last night. And the other is saying this strange thing that happened to him last night. I mean, we're going to listen to. You know, well, tell me about your dream. Tell me more about your dream. No, nobody in this room, unless you're maybe have some, you're a psychoanalyst or something, maybe you, um, you're good with dreams. But mostly we don't care because anything could happen and it doesn't matter. Whereas the thing that really happened, he claims that. And so there's a, there's a great power in that. Um, other things being equal. But there are reasons for, for not doing that. One is that um, you would hurt people that you don't want to hurt. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so you need to transform it. Some, yet it's a story that you want to tell. Mm -hmm. And so you transform it in different ways. And, and maybe your friends would recognize themselves in the, do your friends recognize themselves in the fiction? Nobody's claimed to. Yeah, yeah. Everybody and asks, hey, am I in there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I always say, no, 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 not really. Uh, <laughs> do you want to be in it? Ask them that. <laughs> do you want to be in it? And, and usually they do. Yeah. Um, if I you're guess. a good writer and, and you're not writing nasty, um, horrible stuff, uh, they, they will. They'll, they'll be pleased to be. They'll be pleased to be in it. But um, David Sedaris has written about a lot about writing about family mm -hmm. And, uh, and what he can change. And um, I mean, he says nobody in their right mind would go to memoir for the truth um, <laughs> about, about something. And, uh, but I think he, I think he plays, by the, plays by the generally accepted rules. I, just, I didn't see your hand up, so I thought, she just could go to hand it to somebody who's sitting there <laughs> perfectly innocent. <laughs> like, that would be, that'd be sort of fun. That would be kind of fun. Uh, it's pretty random. We don't yeah. know what's going to happen next, but here it goes. This, um, this is a question about recovering the nerve. Huh? Yeah. And, and it's not a question about me. <laughs> I'm not uh -huh. disguising this. A good friend of mine has written 20 books. He's nationally and internationally known. Friend. Um, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Yeah. It is. <laughs> yeah, I, I believe you. I believe yeah. you. But he is, actually. Yeah. So, but, so what happens to a person, let's just say, that um, has written a lot of books, and you start to notice that deadlines really get, they're not met, and things are moving slowly and slowly, and each book becomes further and further behind and when asked the person would say yeah I'm doing okay I made, made some good progress but you know darn well that, that it's not happening so what do you how do you help that person what do you say to that person to encourage them perhaps to uh, recover their nerve which you know they have yeah well I, I mean I wouldn't automatically assume that it's a matter of nerve it, it might be. It may be that you, you seem to know enough about this person to, to say it's a matter of nerve. Um, there's all kinds of reasons for not writing. Uh, running, out of, running out of stuff to say um, is a, a legitimate phenomenon. And uh, uh, 
And, and maybe it's that. So maybe it's, it, I, would, I would suggest the possibility that there are various other things going on, but maybe it has to do with the particular project, um, with the person's work habits, maybe with that person's health. I mean, there's all kinds of things. Um, um, I would get interested in I would be curious about it, um, not with the aim at fixing him or her, but coming to understand it yourself because it's your friend and you're interested in your friend. And then maybe out of that you might discover something in, out of conversations that maybe you would discover something that's saying, yeah, he's, a, he's afraid of this. It's this project, it's this moment, it's this time in his life, he's afraid of something, and then maybe you could help this person get beyond it. I think we just have time for one more quick question. So this gentleman had one. Thank you. Uh, the problem I'm struggling with right now is the beginning of a novel that's very autobiographical. This is similar to the question lady yeah. mentioned before. I've got a couple of main characters, and one of them is definitely going to recognize himself as the heavy in the story. Uh -huh, uh -huh. The last time we met back in the 60s, there was blood involved. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so well. It's a yeah. uh, tough situation, but I, I want to tell the story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess I would say if it's fiction, I would, uh, I mean, part of it depends on how you care about this person. I know somebody say, I don't care if this person, I hope you recognize himself. I mean, you know, those acts, and that's kind of small-minded, but who, which of us is not small-minded much of the time? Uh, I, I know I'm not. Um, but I would say make, how many changes can you make in this person? Make fundamental changes. I'll just change his name from um, Bill to Gill. And, um, uh, but um, change, change everything. If, if, if you're being held back by the knowledge of this guy um, and his similarity to this, I would say change everything that doesn't change the story. All right? If the guy is tall, make him short, unless his tallness is a part of the story. But maybe shortness could be, um, and could function exactly the same way. If he has a full head of hair, make him bald as a cue ball. You know, there's just all kinds of things. Give him different jobs. Um, when I published a story, I, I had a, a my, yeah, this was my, I guess my second collection of stories, writing a story about my, Father and mother, my mother-in-law and father-in-law came to visit us. Um, they fought all the time when, when we were, I was just married. Um, they fought all the time. Um, and my mother-in-law made a suicide attempt while she was staying with us. All right? And had to, kind of a half-assed attempt, but uh, enough that had, and we had to haul her to the hospital. And... Um, she got all kinds of attention, and it was, you know, just a, I'm furious. You don't do this to your, somebody you're visiting. You don't commit suicide the first time you go to their house. Um, it's, just, it's just rude. But I really wanted to write about, I really wanted to write, she's deceased now. In many ways, a remarkable, lovely woman, but this was not lovely. Uh, I really wanted to write about that situation, I really felt it was a story, so, so some of the things I did was to um, switch the, um, I made it the husband's mother rather than the wife's um, mother, and I made the point of view the, the woman who was uh, thinking about her, her husband and, and his parents, um, changed a number of physical things, I, I, I moved them to a different state, they were coming from a different state, I gave the, um, the um, different professions than what they had in terms of the, you know, the way you kind of carry your profession around with you uh, in some way. I, I gave them different professions. The, the, but the big thing was switching the, switching the families, I guess, acting as if it were um, my parents. Um, and, and I got it done. And, and, and I left out some things that, um, I said, but, but she was a smart woman, and she read it, and she said, I think I recognize um, something about this one story, and, but she was okay with it, because she was not humiliated, all right? I'd moved things far enough away from her, and, and nobody really knew about this except 
my wife and I. It wasn't like it was a public thing that anybody would, would respond to. Um, she was not humiliated. She did not feel she had been exposed. The way um, Mark Doty's father <laughs> knew he was being exposed and was furious about it. Um, um, so, so I would say that. I would say make a do due diligence, all right? The lawyers talk about due diligence. Um, this is, should be a writer's due diligence where you say, okay, I have made a real effort to move, to disguise you, to move you out of this story, to make it new. And that's important to do even if you're not protecting the person, just to make it real fiction. Give yourself the freedom to say what needs to be said. Um, and um, so, um, so that would be my recommendation. Right. Thank you all re very much. You've really been terrific.